You're listening to Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Got a great guest on the program, Chad Frischman. Chad has got an amazing background. You'll notice our new intro music. It just kind of came in randomly to us, unsolicited. The universe is aligning with us in some way. So this artist, Smuda, is Dave Smuda Smith. Just sent us the music unsolicited, said, hey, you guys, I'd uh, love to contribute to your show and uh it's super cool music so we're glad to have that on the uh on the program as the warm-up music and um just to give a little background for those new listeners uh my my background is an attorney and music aficionado and one of the legal cases i've worked on is fighting exxon and the torrance refinery for polluting the surrounding area I also ran for president in 2020 as a Republican challenging Donald Trump because of his absolutely terrible environmental policies and his personal contempt for the environment. He sees the environment as something to be exploited and generate money from rather than an invaluable resource we need to protect for future generations. So I was glad to support Joe Biden as I believed his concerns for the environment made him the far better candidate. Now, putting aside the thousands of other reasons that Trump is unfit for office, uh, let's move on. Thank you all for tuning in on the radio. Please check out other episodes we have online at climatechange.com. I'm excited to talk to Chad. Chad's an incredibly smart dude and author of a New York Times bestseller, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed uh, to reverse global warming. He created Project Drawdown, which is a leading source for climate solutions. And one of the things I really like about Chad is his belief for the last 25 years that we've been inundated with fear-based approaches to the climate, and it hasn't worked, and we need to change it to one of possibility and opportunity. Uh, Chad, welcome to the program, and tell us a little bit about this possibility and opportunity of stopping climate change. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here today and to talk to you and all of your listeners about real solutions that can solve climate change and go beyond to creating a regenerative future. I mean, as you say there, you know, I think one of the most challenging parts of addressing the climate crisis that we're in is that for the last 25 years, we've been mired in a fear-based approach to action, right? Um, the, we have to be grounded into the reality of what climate change is, the reality of what's built into our system. And that does create a reasonable and understandable amount of fear uh, in, in how we might approach things. But that's not actually leading us to take action in a positive way that can address the climate crisis that we're facing. So we have to shift that thinking from a fear-based approach to one that's based on the possibility of what that future can hold when we start to implement real existing solutions that already exist today. And as you mentioned, my work with Project Drawdown, I led that team for over eight years and we mapped, modeled, and described all the different technologies and practices that exist today that taken together as a system of solutions can not only stop global warming, begin the process of reversing it. But it requires that mindset shift because if we're stuck in that, you know, a, a system based on fear, based on competition, and based on a fixation of problem, right? We're so oriented on like how to fix that and tweak the problems of the system that we're currently operating in. This is not leading us to, you know, envisioning the future that we actually really want. 
If we took a moment and imagined what that future looks like, instead of trying to tweak the system of, and, and fix the problems of the past, well, we actually have a pathway, if we see that and imagine that future, a pathway to solve the greatest challenges that humanity has ever faced. So it's all really about changing mindsets, changing from fear to possibility, changing from problem fixation to solutions orientation, and changing from conflict and competition to collaboration. One is a recipe for disaster, an apathy, and difference to the status quo. And the other is a, a glorious opportunity to reimagine, recreate a future economy, to become leaders of that future economy and future society that benefits all life. The solutions are there. We know what they are. We know what we can do to achieve these really seemingly audacious goals, but it takes that mindset shift. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, and I feel like I can relate to that on a personal level. When I see things as a matter of opportunity that I'm going for, it's much more exciting and I can kind of generate more energy behind that versus a fear-based uh, situation. I get into panic mode or apathy, feeling right. like, oh, I'm just overwhelmed. I can't do it. Uh, screw it. I might as well just eat cheeseburgers or something. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's a perfectly natural response. And you shouldn't. we shouldn't run away from that because that grounds us in the reality of what's actually happening. But if we have a framework that can quickly turn that fear and that desire to go eat that cheeseburger to say, well, actually, I can eat a delicious plate of pasta instead of that cheeseburger, or maybe even an impossible burger or some other kind of you know, alternative meat product that tastes delicious, I can actually have an impact on that and, and make that transfer. So it's about taking those first steps after you ground yourself in reality, taking those first steps to possibility. And each step thereafter becomes easier and easier. Right. I was just having a conversation yesterday with some friends about just that thing, about eating healthy and and the meat substitute products that are out there that actually are really tasty. And uh, there was one restaurant here in LA that serves a dish that's kind of a meat substitute. And I, and I think it's so close to meat. It really can fool people. It's, it's so amazingly good. So um, it, there is a possibility of enjoying our lives and uh, letting go of some of the things that we feel are natural cultural go-tos. Um, you know, there is a future out that's right. there that's that's delicious and tasty. It doesn't have to be the worst food ever. <laughs> you know, we can we can make this good and have it be healthy for the planet. That's right. I mean, that's right, Matt. I mean, there's even a company that, you know, I'm an advisor to the, an organization that's investing in supporting this company called Juicy Marbles. Great name, right? And they're actually created a alternative steak. Imagine that an actual steak that you can cut into has the same texture, flavor, profile as a delicious, juicy steak, but it is all plant-based. So, I mean, this yeah. is, this is really around the corner where we're going to have that transformation, how we, how we eat, how we consume in a way that, you know, is satisfying our well-being and what we desire, but also is good, better for the planet. Yeah. I mean, there are great restaurants out there and you see more and more of them that are serving great food that I could say, you know what, I could, I could, eat more plant-based. If I, if I go to the restaurants like this, I'm not, I'm kind of at a one, two, some days, three days a week, uh, vegetarian, but, yeah. uh, you know, trying to ramp it up a bit more and, and it's doable, it's doable. And it's, 
and it's fine. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm suffering. And I think that's the part we have to create it in a way that we see possibility opportunity, like you're saying, versus looking at it like, oh my God, I've got to give up this stuff yeah. that I like, and it's going to be terrible. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of it has to do with media itself, right? And if you think about what's the all American breakfast, right? What do you, what do you imagine? Eggs, toast, some sausage and bacon or something like this, right? That's a, yeah. We think of when we go to the American diner, we see that. And it's actually become ubiquitous in every hotel around the world. You get a standard breakfast, eggs, bacon, uh, uh, maybe some fried potatoes, whatever it is. And it's become ubiquitous. But actually, this is not a traditional way that we've actually consumed breakfast. This is something that uh, the uh, branding companies and PR companies created about 100 years ago. My dear friend, the chef Charles Nichelle, often talks about this. We created the illusion that it is traditional to eat this all-American breakfast was an ad agency created this. So if we think about the power of media and the power of advertisers to change how we behave, how we think, and our mindsets, we can actually redefine what we consider to be the traditional all-American breakfast or the traditional anything that we do into something that is better for the planet, but is not taking away. It's not destroying how we want to enjoy and, and live and uh, our lives and with our, with our friends and family and communities. We can have that and have that well-being and have those livelihoods and are better for the planet. But we need to have media. We need to have the advertisers. We need to have people from all spectrums, from, from individuals all the way to government and everything in between, taking action to redefining what, how we see and perceive what is good for us and good for the planet. Well, I think that it's kind of a, a brainwashing that you just described, which is telling us a story that's not true. And the story is that bacon and eggs are the thing that we eat for breakfast when it's just not a real accurate picture of, of what we probably did eat 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It's just something that we were sold. And then because it's great advertising, it persuades us. And then we think that and then we're brainwashed by the advertising, which is kind of sad on one level, but it's also exciting that we can recognize, hey, that was just some you know, good advertising slash bad advertising. And now we can we can reset. So uh, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, your host. And I've got Chad Frischman on the program. We'll be right back in just one minute to talk to Chad about uh, the ways we can change our behavior to change the planet. You're listening to Climate Change. I've got Chad Frischman on the program today. Chad, you know, we kind of jumped over your bio a little bit. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to the position you're at? Kind of like uh, your life story in two minutes hmm. or less. Uh, oh, my goodness. What, brought, what you brought you to the environment? What, what made you an environmental activist? Thank you, Matt, for that question. I'll try to keep it down to two minutes. Um, you know, like it was actually a trip. Five, whatever. <laughs> three to five. I'll try to keep it in two minutes. You know, um, it was actually a trip to sub-Saharan Africa. I was, I was studying. I was doing a PhD work at Oxford University, um, three years into it, working on uh, institutional identity uh, formation in the Holy Roman Empire of the 16th century. 
That's supposed my PhD work. Do you believe That's it? Very exciting. Right? Propaganda, how we use propaganda in order to change institutions. Well, I went on a trip to sub-Saharan Africa on sabbatical for two months. And while there, I fell in love with the, the people that I met along the way, the communities, the joy that they, were, they, that they had was you know, starkly different from what I grew up with in the United States and what I uh, experienced in England, this, this sense of community and togetherness. Uh, but I also fell in love with the biodiversity, the beautiful wildlife that's all so special uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. But sadly, at the same time, I also saw the degradation of that environment and I saw the poverty of the people in the communities that I, I, I witnessed firsthand. Um, the poverty and the lack of access to economic opportunity, the lack of education, the inequality of the very system that I had been studying uh, the formation of, there's no, no small measure was a, a byproduct of that system. So after about two months of backpacking through sub-Saharan Africa, I flew back to, to Oxford, gave up my PhD, flew to California on the day Obama was elected to office actually, and I, from that point forward, for the last 15 years, I've been dedicating my life to the environment and really focusing on this nexus between sustainable development. So how do we improve livelihoods in a way that's within our planetary boundaries? How do we preserve and protect biodiversity in the environment? And also very importantly, how do we work to improve the livelihoods of local and indigenous people's communities around the world, those who are most affected by our changing climate? And so for the last 15 years, I've been focused on that, th those areas. And that led me after quite a few years to launch Project Drawdown with Paul Hawken and Amanda Ravenhill. And, and so far, the rest is kind of history. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Project Drawdown. Yeah, so Project Drawdown, we launched in 2014. Um, and I led the team there for about eight years. Um, and Project Drawdown was, uh, you know, when we first launched it, we didn't think it was necessarily going to go anywhere. We figured who would want a list of solutions to climate change? Well, Turns out everybody did. So what we did, Project Drawdown was a nonprofit organization that brought together researchers and scientists from all over the world. And we designed a framework to evaluate what the potential of those existing technologies and practices were at scale um, and whether or not we could actually achieve our Paris Agreement, uh, our Paris targets, uh, two degrees Celsius warming target or the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target described by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC is what we need to stay within our you know, boundaries before we go to some you know, really problematic tipping points in this world. Um, so we evaluated the system of solutions that could stop and begin the process of reversing global warming. We introduced the concept of drawdown into the climate space. And after eight years of leading that team, we recently left and started a new organization called Regenerative Intelligence, which we're really excited about. We just launched that last week on, uh, on Earth Day. Oh, that's awesome. I was going to go back to some of your work at Project Drawdown. And, and one of the things that uh, caught my eye as I was looking at it was um, your work on refrigerants and mm. the incredible amount of damage that refrigerants do to our, our atmosphere and ways that we might be able to change that. And, and uh, why don't you give us a little bit more detail as to uh, your thoughts about how we could make a big shift in that area? Oh, well, that's a good question. So refrigerant management, refrigerants, hydrofluorocarbons are some of the most highest potential global warming potential uh, greenhouse gases that we are emitting today as part of our you know, economy. And they're ubiquitous in any of our uh, refrigeration units and our air conditioning units. 
um, they exist to help cool the air and they're becoming increasingly more important in our economy as we are are experiencing increased temperatures, increased global warming. We're going to have to have more of these uh, refrigeration units and in circulation. The problem is we're using uh, we're using hydrofluorocarbons uh, that are uh, uh, gases, refrigerant gases that have, are hundreds to thousands of times more potent to greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And sadly, during in these what we call refrigerant banks, there leakage occurs. So these hydrofluorocarbons escape into the atmosphere and causing a significant uh, damage to, uh, to, to, uh, to climate change, increasing uh, global warming temperatures. And there are very easy ways that we can address this. First of all, of course, refrigerant management during the lifetime of those units in our homes, we can ensure that we're not leaking these hydrofluorocarbons into the atmosphere while they, uh, these appliances are in use. And when they're at the end of life, we can take these appliances instead of dumping them to a landfill where they remain in the landfill emitting those hydrofluorocarbons, we can actually dispose of those, destroy the hydrofluorocarbons at facilities. So there are many ways in which we can deal with this issue. Um, and there's also alternatives. There's natural alternatives that can be used in replace, to replace those hydrofluorocarbons. So the point here is, you know, nobody would ever think that refrigerated gases have such an important role to play in stopping global warming, because we don't really think about all the things in our system that are contributing to it. And the reality is, is nearly everything we do as a human species, every activity across our, our, across our economy is producing greenhouse gases, whether that's carbon dioxide or methane or nitrous oxide or hydrofluorocarbons, fluorinated gases. These are everything we do from whether we turn on our lights, from the coal, oil, and gas fire plants that are churning up fossil fuels into the atmosphere, um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, um, when we turn on our lights, or, or you know, when we're burning you know, extracted dead phytoplankton in the tailpipe of our cars to move from point A to point B. Like everything we do is producing emissions. And this is where the opportunity comes, because we have to change everything in order to solve climate change, in order to begin reversing global warming. And so if this is an opportunity to change everything, we can actually create that future by design. And if we have existing solutions like refrigerant management and alternative refrigerants that are readily available, already exist today, and in many, most cases are economically viable, certainly in the long, medium and long-term economically viable, well, then it's kind of a no-brainer. We can well, actually us, change that system. Well, tell us how we would change it. You, you know, paint that picture uh, I assume that there might need to be some legislation that would direct manufacturers to to do this because otherwise a lot of manufacturing will not change their direction without a changing of the entire playing field because you know like GE isn't going to change if Maytag isn't going to change uh that's right that type of thing so that's one element of it and then who are the companies that are that are making the natural alternatives? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it really takes everybody uh, in, in, in the system. So we do need legislation and regulatory mechanisms to take a step up and prohibit the continued. I mean, we have the Kigali Agreement, for example, which is, you know, it's an international agreement that phases out the production of hydrofluorocarbons. It's very similar to the Montreal Protocol. Um, so it's phasing out hydrofluorocarbons. And so we need to uh, ensure that this is actually happening. And so we need legislation and regulatory mechanisms to put these mandates onto industry to ensure that they are making this transition. Um, so that has to happen. Yes. And we also need leaders in the space. We need industry leaders. Well, and let, me, let, me stop you. 
Let me just stop you there for a second and, and say, where are we at in the U.S. and and in the states, state by state? Not that we need to go through 50 states, but you know, take take the leaders like California and New York. Uh, where are we today regarding federal and state uh, legislation to actually phase out HFCs? Well, I mean, we've made a lot of progress, I will have to say, over the course of the last you know five years. But there's still a lot more to do. I mean, California has certainly made a lot of uh, regulations and legislation to phase out hydrofluorocarbons. I think they're really the leader uh, across the country right now. And I believe that uh, the federal government has agreed to a commitment to the Kigali Agreement to phase out this. But I I will pause and say that I am not 100% up to date with all of the policy uh, and legislations going around the country and currently with the administrations. But I do know that we have a long way to go. Um, and uh, I just had a conversation mm, a few weeks ago with a leading industry, a le- an industry leader in refrigeration who's been saying uh, the need for alternative refrigerants, the need to be phasing out uh, hydrofluorocarbons for decades, literally. I mean, this is not a new problem. We've known this for a long time. The refrigeration industry has known those who are producing these hydrofluorocarbons have known for a long time that it is the pollutant that it is causing global warming, just like many of the other industries that are continuing to pollute and cause global warming and pollute in many other ways too. We have to remember that these are, you know, there, there's climate change, right? There's this global warming that's happening, but we have so many other uh, challenges and, and problems that are occurring because of these pollutants are putting into our air, into our water, and into our terrestrial systems. So they have known about this for a long time, and there's a long, long way to go. And someone was just telling me recently, said, our work at Project Drawdown have brought refrigerant management up to like the top of people's agenda items, but people have lost interest. So we need media, we need more media, we need more folks bringing it back to the attention of folks, and also that legislation. Absolutely. So uh, you're listening to it here on climate change and everybody get up to speed. We need to hold our public officials accountable to change the policies and enforce the reduction of HFC. So that's that's our job as citizens is to be informed and to promote action. So we'll be back in just one minute with our great guest, Chad Frischman to talk to us more about ways that uh, we can change this world and make it even more wonderful. You're listening to a climate change. My guest today, Chad Frischman of Regen Intel or Regenerative Intelligence, um, kind of shortened and make it made cooler. Uh, tell us about uh, Regen Intel and uh, how it got started and, and why it got started and what kind of projects you're working on. So Regen Intel, definitely a cooler sounding name than regenerative intelligence. But I actually think regenerative intelligence is pretty cool. And if you compare it to artificial intelligence, regenerative intelligence is a whole discussion to have there, but for another time. Uh, so Regen Intel is a activation agency and advisory. And what we mean by that is we are working to help uh, guide and steward organizations and individuals to become activators to actually implement solutions. So we talked a lot about earlier in this episode, all the different climate solutions that we profiled at Project Drawdown, and that's great, right? 
understanding the system of solutions that taken together as a whole, and we need every single one of those solutions in order to solve global warming for sure, but understanding what all those solutions are and what the possibility of that impact is over the next 30 years in terms of climate and their financial impact, that is hugely important. That sets the bar kind of like where we want to go for climate, but how do you actually do it? And so that's what Region Intel is about. How can we actually activate individuals and organizations to take their first steps towards understanding how to implement solutions in the context in which they're working on? Um, you know, and we do that by, by assembling, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, an agency, a talent agency. We call it a, an ecosystem of experts and stars. I call it actually the cosmos of stars. I'm a little bit woo-woo, Matt, to be honest. I have become woo-woo since I moved to California. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but the cosmos. And the idea here is, you know, just like there are billions of stars in the cosmos, each shining brightly, there are billions of stars on this planet who are waiting for their superpowers to be ignited or steer towards that common purpose of creating you know, that regenerative future. And we um, uh, at Regen Intel work to find those superpowered thinkers and doers in order to activate them in the right constellations of groups uh, to work on projects, to work on, you know, real, real implementation pathways for organizations and individuals. And there, we've launched uh, Region Intel uh, uh, just last week, uh, as I said, on Earth Day, with over 65 of those world-class thinkers and doers. And what I mean by thinkers and doers, I want to talk about this for a second. When I was younger, I really thought the world consisted of just thinkers and doers. And then as I grew older, I realized there's a lot of talkers out there who just talk, <laughs> talk, talk. And at some point, I realized there's a lot of takers as well. A lot of appropriators who come in and they take and they you know, have a kind of a colonizer mindset where they absorb, appropriate, and then continue to talk and continue to take. And so when I set out to create Region Intel, I wanted to make sure it was comprised of just thinkers and doers, people who are really doing the work who really understand the solutions that they're operating, the systems, how they work together. And, and, and they're cross-disciplinary. They're, they're, they're cross-geographies, cross-generations. And they're some of the greatest thinkers and doers that I know and I've been blessed to know over the course of my career, just launching with 65 of them. But Region Intel is designed to be an agency that brings more and more of those thinkers and doers, world-class thinkers and doers with activated superpowers to help transform and educate those organizations and individuals to start actually implementing, doing, doing it right. How do we actually do this instead of talking about it? I am all for that. Excuse uh, my language. Know. I just, oh, yeah, excuse my language. oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm shocked, but uh, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, and I feel like my arc from just thinking about the environmental problems or reading about them decades ago to uh, taking some modest steps more recently is kind of a not as fast of a path as maybe I would like, but I I continue to reach out to people who have expertise like yourself, learn more, and uh, try to take action in accord with the ideas that I'm learning from the the smartest people I can find. And that's precisely it, right? I mean, how do we find the right group of people that can help folks like you? Organization, some of the projects that we're working on, for example, we, we launched with over five, six, sorry, I should say, uh, launch clients, which include 
one of uh, Europe's largest climate tech VCs, um, a startup VC. We have uh, NGOs. We worked uh, with Representative Espayat's office, who just introduced the Earth Bill to the U.S. Congress in December, reintroduced as the Earth Act to stop climate pollution uh, in the United States by 2030. They have over five other signatories. Regen Intel did the analysis to determine the impact of the Earth Act, uh, which is, I think, the most ambitious piece of legislation ever proposed to any national legislature that I'm aware of. So we work with governments from local to national scale. We work with NGOs doing really transformative work. We work with VCs and philanthropists, and we work with businesses and corporations. And we want to be sure to guide and steer them towards a pathway um, that is going to make them leaders of tomorrow, today, with the right set of solutions that not only, you know, solve for their climate targets, which is like, you know, what we've done in the past, we understand all those climate solutions. But what about our sustainability goals? How can we solve for our climate targets and our sustainability goals at the same time? And I, I think more importantly, Matt, how can we not only solve for our sustainability goals, but kind of push beyond the system to a regenerative model, right? If we think about a regenerative system broadly, a regenerative economy more broadly than just regenerative agriculture or just re ecosystem restoration, to how can we envision our renewable energy systems as regenerative, our built environment as a regenerative system? These solutions that exist already today uh, that can help solve for climate change can also have those direct impacts on our sustainable development goals. And if done right, with principles that are aligned with that regenerative future can be done and help usher in that regenerative future of tomorrow. So we want to help guide our, our organizational clients and individuals to help steer them in that pathway so that we can solve for multiple challenges at the same time and be leaders, really leaders of that next economy that we know is coming. Well, I'd say just kind of talking about some personal experience. I We had a guest on the show uh, from 1% for the planet and- mm they have like 5,800 different nonprofits that they fund from that 1%. And you can choose the ones that you like. And I feel like that was a good starting or good step for our organization, our law firm to take, to get people engaged in the process. Like here, we're, we're engaging. And that to me is, it's not the end game, but it's, it's the first step. And, and that's, uh, part of the lethargy of you know people around the world, and I can say personally, is taking that first step. So you like you need mm -hmm. to take the first step, and then once you take the first step, the next step is a little bit easier. But in terms of something else you had said versus you know kind of a regenerative power, I was curious as to whether or not you're familiar with any solar or wind uh, energy companies that are using maybe more regenerative type approaches approaches to generating solar and wind power uh, because obviously those uh, take some degree of mining and energy. Uh, is, is there a greener path to, to technologies like that? I mean, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I never go on shows and, and endorse any particular company. It's sort of my own personal MO. So, uh, but there are companies that are making headway here. But I think more importantly, when we think about this extractive model, we, it is true. You're absolutely right. In order to create that fully renewable energy system that we know that we need requires more extraction of rare earth minerals. 
and uh, materials from uh, from the earth that that is really disrupted, particularly towards indigenous people's communities, where oftentimes these resources are in abundance, and oftentimes indigenous peoples are being displaced from their own territories for that mining. And it's, it requires a lot of thoughtful uh, regulation to prevent that protection and enshrinement of indigenous people's land tenure rights to their lands to prevent that from happening on those lands. But you're right, there's still, there's still an extractive process. And so, you know, when people often ask me about this and I say, look, I'm not saying that a renewable energy system of today um, is a regenerative system, but it can become that. And why is that? Because if we innovate the hell out of the solutions that already exist today, we innovate those solar panels and make them smaller and smaller and smaller, more resource productive and made out of different kinds of materials, which are already happening. There's already researchers all over the world that are, are, are transforming how we think about renewable energy by transforming the, 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 the technology itself. That's not inventing some new silver bullet that's going to come along and change everything in the system. It's taking the concept of solution that already exists today and making it a hell of a lot more efficient, more resource productive. And by resource productive, I mean, you need to extract less and less and less and less and less to produce more and more and more and more of that power. That's happening already today. And in five to 10 years, it's going to, we're going to have transformations in that that space. So what I say, we need to build today with a regenerative mindset to steer industry in, with those regenerative principles, but solving our targets, uh, climate targets with the urgency that the climate emergency demands today, right? Don't lose sight of that. And then innovate the hell out of those technologies in order to make them more and more part of a regenerative future in five to 10 years to come. Well, that's uh, well said. And I think that's totally in line with what uh, you were talking about earlier, which is having opportunity and possibility being the guiding lights for, for the future. And kind of, it's a much more exciting future, the way you describe it versus kind of this gloom and doom scenario. And I think that will turn people on saying, oh, okay, that's, that's an exciting future. I can kind of get behind that. And then, um, you have less people fighting the change and wanting to be a part of it and seeing, hey, this is this has a lot of uh, economic possibility, even putting aside doing good for the planet. This is the wave of the future. Why don't we get behind it? Because if we don't do it here in the States, somebody else is going to do it. So it, it's coming. It's just a question of who's going to be the leader in this and, and why not uh, the U.S.? So you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Chad Frischman. We'll be back in just one minute to talk to Chad about all the other great work they're doing at Regen Intel. Listen to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Chad Frischman on the show. Uh, Chad, you've got your own uh, podcast, Chad's Climate Quest, and uh, you can tell the listeners about that as well as what uh, projects Regen Intel is involved in. Um, tell us a little bit about the virtuous cycle of collaborative intelligence and why that's an effective solution to combat climate change. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, those are those are all big questions. So Chad's Climate Quest, 
I think that originated last year. Um, and so far we've gone through about only 20, 20 episodes. So I've got a lot more to catch up with you, uh, you Matt, but the whole premise is, you know, there's so many amazing thinkers and doers. Like I talked about earlier, the, the, the cosmos that we're, we launched at region Intel comprises of some of them, but there's so many more out there, real solutionists. And so the whole premise is, I'm on my quest to find those thinkers and doers. I want to go find who are the people that are really implementing those solutions or really coming up with brilliant, you know, planetary grade thinking and ideas and visions of that future. And I want to interview them. And so I, we come together because, you know, this is an opportunity, as I said earlier, this is an opportunity to change everything. Climate change affords us this terrible, at a terrible, terrible cost, the realities of climate change. But it's also an amazing opportunity. Once in the history of our species, do we have an opportunity to change everything? Because we have to. So how do we create that future by design? And so Chad's Climate Quest is a podcast where we try to find those people who want to help create that future. And they're realistic people. They're folks who are in business and investment and they're, they're, they're environmental do-gooders. They're everybody across the spectrum because we need to bring everybody to the table in order to do that. Um, anyway, so Chad's Climate Quest is a, a great thing. I encourage you all to take a look at it. It's a Twitter space at the moment, um, but we're, we're advancing into a, a, a formalized produced a podcast later this year. Um, but at Regen Intel, Regenerative Intelligence, which is, you know, Chad's Climate Quest is, is created by Regen Intel. Um, it's part of my pathway to finding all those great thinkers and doers and to bring them into our agency. Um, but Region Intel, as I said, we work on a number of different projects. Um, our, our, the line of services that we offer our, our, our clients, for example, uh, we do evaluations. So we evaluate your current activities. What are you doing right now? And how, how in alignment are they with the real climate potential for uh, achieving your climate targets? So we do an evaluation of your climate impact but also your sustainability goals, right? How aligned is your climate targets and your sustainability goals and where are you with your regenerative principles? We also work with some clients in what we call pathways. These are those pathways to creating those, becoming those regenerative leaders of tomorrow. And we work directly with them to scope out what are the system of solutions they could be implementing internally to become that regenerative leader but also externally how they can, they can be a supporting and a leader in their industry to, again, achieve, achieve their climate targets, sustainability goals, and regenerative principles. Um, and then finally, we, we do something we call keystone projects. These are large scale, big projects that we see are absolutely fundamental to creating the regenerative economy of the future. And I'll profile that one real quickly. You know, we're, we're, we're in partnership with one of our clients called Grounded, which is a a uh, philanthropic nonprofit organization that works to really uh, accelerate the most impactful climate solutions on the planet. Um, they work uh, on uh, uh, communications and media, they work in legislation, and they, and they work with real solutions on the ground, and, and, and a lot of uh, working with indigenous peoples around the planet. And so together with Grounded and Region Intel, we launched a project we call Project Peoples. And what this is, is how do we, we, we bring together and aggregate knowledge about solutions for the planet that come from indigenous people's wisdom. Because indigenous peoples have, uh, uh, through countless generations, developed solutions, planetary grade solutions that um, ensure that we are uh, 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 living and operating within our planetary boundaries and that our well-being is met. So we're working with indigenous peoples from all over the world 
from every continent, every generation, um, every perspective in the Indigenous space who have come together to help bring together those solutions. Now imagine the work that we draw, did with Drawdown, the system of solutions to solve for climate change from the Western scientific perspective. Well, now we're doing the same thing from an Indigenous perspective. And then we're weaving these together. So how do we have a complete and composite uh, knowledge system that blends uh, indigenous wisdom with scientific knowledge in a way to really advance a more holistic and comprehensive set of solutions for the planet? You know, policymakers, uh, investors, and business have come to me. Uh, I can't tell you how many come to me and say, we want to be investing in communities on the ground. We want to invest in real solutions, but we also want to understand what those solutions are, we don't truly understand them. So, so we work with indigenous peoples uh, around the world to bring together those solutions, to do the analysis um, and to bridge those knowledge systems so that we can accelerate more and more solutions and, and divert more capital, more policy, more attention to these uh, local and indigenous communities on the ground. Um, so that's just one of the projects, for example, that Region Intel is doing. I mentioned the Earth Bill, the Earth Act already. So we, we really span a lot of different types of decision makers and levels of, uh, levels of agency and different types of sectors. Um, and we can do that because we have such an amazing uh, uh, cosmos ecosystem of experts that can be activated to do this work with us. Well, it sounds great. Uh, I was As you were talking, I was thinking of the seventh generation principle and, and listening mm -hmm. to a Native American leader and talking about if anything that they would look at would be how, how is this going to affect seven generations down the road? And I think right. that unfortunately, um, you know, capitalism for doing some good things hasn't asked that question, hasn't asked that question of how will this process, how will this pollution affect seven generations down the road? It was more how can we make money this quarter or the that's next right. year or the next business cycle, whatever. And that's just the wrong question. So, you know, it's no wonder that we ended up with some of the technologies we ended up with because we weren't asking the right question, uh, you know, to solve the problem of uh, cars going uphill, they decided to put lead in gasoline. They knew that lead was poisonous, but they just did it anyway. So yeah. Uh, you know, that's, we've got to, we've got to shift our mindset for the long term. And unfortunately we didn't do that for generations and generations, but, uh, we can change now. So tell us a little bit about the global solutions Alliance and what are you doing uh, with that? Well, yeah, just, I want to touch on one point about your, the, your intergenerational thinking and it's why that's so, so important. And it's because you know, because of climate change, the decisions we make today are the most important decisions in the entire history of our species, because they don't affect just us. They already are affecting people today. The number of people already affected by climate disaster this last year is, is in, the, in the tens of millions of people, and it's only going to get worse. And the decisions we make today are going to affect us today, our children and grandchildren tomorrow and every single future generation to come. And if we're not thinking about that intergenerationality, then we have, uh, th then, then we're gonna go down in history as the generation that lost this one moment, this one moment that we had to change everything. And so it's so important to think intergenerationally. And the Global Solutions Alliance kind of feeds into that. You know, we believe very strongly that um, one of the great uh, challenges in order to really thinking in the long-term and really 
accelerating solutions is the lack of accessible, usable, and meaningful knowledge. Now, we all think that we're awash with knowledge and data. We, have, we know what the solutions are. We know everything. We know everything. The reality is, is we don't. We don't know everything, and we don't know how to implement everything. We don't, know how, we don't have the capacity to think through every scenario, but that data and information is there. It's not being used, uh, it's not accessible or being used in a way that allows us to make those decisions from a really informed way. So the Global Solutions Alliance uh, exists in order to help create that regenerative economy of the future by creating a knowledge base that is free and open source, public good for humanity. We're launching a digital platform we call the Solutions Collaboratory. This will be a collaboration center for organizations and individuals, uh, free and open source uh, knowledge commons with data and information and knowledge about solutions that, again, cross just not only the climate uh, silo, but cross through into sustainability and regeneration. So climate plus, 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 as well as a modeling framework and tool sets that people can make sense out of this. And, and really, it's about breaking down silos. So the Global Solutions Alliance, which has already been founded by for-profit and non-profit entities, is coming together to create the collaboratory in order to accelerate solutions and make this that knowledge base for the future and all future generations to come. Well, Chad, amazing uh, work that you're doing, and I and I applaud you and your and your partners at, at uh, Regen Intel. And everybody should go check out your website at regenerativeintel.earth. It was great having you on the program. Um, you know, I'm a strong believer in building coalitions, and so you're you know you're speaking my language there. Um, you know, want to link up with like-minded folks like Chad and uh, check out our social media channels like those and and follow both of us and we'll follow you if you're up to good things and and find a group that you're passionate about and and find some place that you can contribute your time, your energy, your talents. Uh, check out our program at climatechange.com and uh, follow it on Spotify and Apple Music. And follow Chad's Climate Quest. Sounds like an exciting program. A lot of great thinkers and doers. Uh, Looking forward to uh, working with you, Chad, in the future. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate you having me on the show. And just a small little correction. It's regenintel.earth. Oh, there we go. Regenintel.earth. Everybody check it out. Thanks, uh, Thanks for being on the show, Chad. Thanks so much, Matt. Everybody tune in next week. 